Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. My name is Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called Luther's Body Language, Remembering the Reformer. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 5th, 2017. This is a guest essay by Martha E. Stortz. She's a Bernard M. Christensen Professor of Religion and Vocation at Augsburg University. You may contact her at stortz at augsburg.edu. Her guest essay is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 5th, 2017, and it concludes our five essays remembering the Reformation at 500 years, in which we've posted essays from Catholic, Reformed, Anglican, Orthodox, and this week, one on Luther himself. A guest essay by Martha Stortz. Incarnation forces Christians to think about bodies. After all, God had a body. In Christ, God explodes into human history in human form. Authors of the canonical Gospels themselves seem uncomfortable with the aftershocks. For example, two of them, Mark and John, introduced Jesus as an adult, walking, talking, and speaking with authority like a seasoned rabbi. Only Luke and Matthew include birth narratives, which extend incarnation into infancy in its messy vulnerability. Christ is God's body in the world, and the fact of incarnation persists, despite centuries of theological dispute about when and how God got that body, what in it is truly human or truly divine, whether that body felt pain or hunger or thirst or death. Incarnation has confounded theologians. One theologian who reveled in the body was Martin Luther, 1483-1546 and his embrace of corporality struck a new note in theological thinking. Surely a revolution in doctrine, the Reformation also altered how people thought about and lived in their bodies. Looking at Luther's body language underscores some of these shifts in thinking about the human body, God's body, and the body politic. First of all, the human body. Monastic training taught Luther to treat the body as an impediment to spiritual progress. As an Augustinian monk, he took seriously the asceticisms of poverty, chastity, and obedience, and they drove him to doubt that he could ever physically do enough to contribute to his own salvation. His Reformation discovery that Christ had already accomplished what he could not freed him to treat the body as one more site of conflict in an ongoing battle between God and the devil. While Christ had already won the war and would come again to declare final victory, until that time skirmishes abound. Luther looked at the bodies around him as another battleground, not as the enemy. Accordingly, Luther writes with appreciation for bodies, as a biblical scholar, he attended to the bodies that animated the texts. Writing on Genesis, for example, Luther described the first inhabitant of the Garden of Eden as, quote, intoxicated with rejoicing, end quote. 
Adam frolics before the fall. Full-bodied delight, not some passive beatitude, is humankind's natural state. Even after the incident with the forbidden fruit, bodies are not demonized, and Luther treats them with realism, even humor. He described to a friend his son's successful toilet training. Young Hans learned to squat so well that he, quote, crapped in every corner of the room, end quote. He argued against clerical celibacy on grounds of human necessity. Sex is natural to humans. And the Pope, in, in quote, the Pope has as little power to command this as he had to, has to forbid eating, drinking, the natural movement of the bowels, or growing fat, end quote. Luther urges a woman whose husband refused to consummate their marriage to flee to a foreign country and contract a proper union. Eventually, Luther contracted a proper union himself, marrying the runaway nun Katharina von Bora. A marriage of mutual respect grew into deep affection. When he cannot attend the wedding of a trusted counselor, Luther promises him that on his wedding night he would think of him in, quote, I shall make love to my Catherine while you make love to yours, and thus we will be united in love. Here, sex is neither demonized nor sacralized, but is rather part of being human, and one of the more pleasurable parts at that. In his pastoral counsel and commentaries, Luther exercises more vigilance over other organs, the ears and the mouth. In his Genesis commentaries, the stories of creation and fall are oral and oral events. Three words animate worlds, and God said. When humans enter the creation, God speaks, the creature listens. Created in the image of this kind of God, the man is invited to speak in turn, and he names all the other creatures in obedience to God's invitation. Importantly, obedience in the context of a divine human dialogue literally means listening for God's word. And first, man and woman do just that, until they don't. In Luther's hands, the fall interrupts an ongoing conversation. The serpent tempts the couple by persuading them to doubt God's word. Did God say? Luther's interpretation of the fall as a conversation gone wrong lends force to his catechetical instruction on the Ten Commandments. Not surprisingly, Luther focuses on the ears and the mouth, turning even the thou shalt not commandments into positive injunctions, thou shalt. He raises the bar for believers' conversation with God and with others. Not only should they not profane God's name, but they should call upon him, pray to him, praise him, and give thanks. The Sabbath is a time for listening, where one gladly hears and learns God's word. Writing on the commandment not to bear false witness, Luther urges believers to speak well of the neighbor, char charitably interpreting all that he does. Words spoken, heard, and written have physical force. The invention of the printing press in 1450 amplified the impact of words. Mass-produced print material was widely available, 
and growing literacy rates meant people could read it. Although trained as a university professor and capable of writing in Latin, the language of the academy, Luther preferred the language of the people. He mastered it, becoming one of the best-selling authors in vernacular German. His translation of the Bible carried the lively speech rhythms of a seasoned preacher. Listening to the everyday cadences of the mother in the home, the children in the street, the common man in the marketplace, he described his technique as, quote, looking them in the mouth to see how they speak, end quote. It's striking, it's striking tribute to the most important parts of the body. But then again, Luther intended his translation of the Bible to be proclaimed, not read silently on one's own. After all, the disciples were commissioned not to write the good news, but to go and preach it. The gospel should not be written, but shouted, said Luther, and shout Luther did. The incarnate word was a living word, a word proclaimed. Secondly, the body of Christ. And God said. The word God spoke in creation was the word that became flesh. But God still speaks. The incarnation persists. Where can one hear God speak today? Where can one find the body of Christ in the world today? Luther tackled these questions toward the end of his life when a split with the Roman Catholic Church became inevitable. His directions for finding Christ's body in the world roll out like an ancient hymn, quoting Luther, where you find people preaching and hearing the word, baptizing, breaking bread, forgiving and being forgiven, calling out leaders, praying, praising, teaching their children, walking in the way of the cross, there you find the church. Proclamation, baptism, the Lord's Supper, penance, ordination, catechesis, prayer, praise, discipleship. Where people engage in these practices, there is the church. Significantly, Luther does not locate the church in an institution, a papacy, a place of any sort, but rather in a people, specifically a people engaged in certain practices that mark their bodies like the wounds of his torture, and execution mark the body of the crucified and risen Christ. Given his attention to the ears and the mouth, it makes sense that Luther regarded the preaching and hearing of the word as the central practice. Proclamation orients that other practices, like the sun, anchors the solar system. All the other practices revolve around it, constituting the body of Christ in the world. Beyond these practices, Luther gave additional direction to anyone who wants to find the body of Christ in the world today. These two pointed not to place, but to people. He counseled believers to bear the face of Christ to the neighbor, particularly the neighbor in need. This was no pastoral platitude, but a matter of practical urgency. Leaving the Roman Catholic Church meant erasing social services that cathedrals, monasteries, and convents had supplied. Reformation cities quickly needed to devise some way of caring for the poor in their midst. There were lots of neighbors in need. But Luther also reminded believers that the neighbor bears the face of Christ to them. Christians are to be Christ to the neighbor, but they are also to see Christ 
in the neighbor. That mutual beholding convicts the reformer himself. Thirdly, the body politic. Luther himself did not always see Christ in the face of his neighbor, certainly not the neighbor who was Jewish or Muslim. Luther shouted down the centuries, but his content was not always the gospel. Nor did Luther the polemicist follow the counsel of Luther the pastor. As a polemicist, he did not speak well of his opponents, and he shoveled invective on representatives of the popes and princesses alike when his theological proposals led to excommunication and exile. Add to that Luther's later tirades against the Jews, the Turks, and what he called the murdering hordes of peasants, and one finds a clear path through Nazi Germany and into the current hate-filled populist movements of the present. The reformer left behind a rhetoric that demands repentance, not just in words, but in embodied actions. Any piece on Luther must make amends for the reformer's hate speech, because hate speech con continues the crucifixion, breaking the body of Christ still further. In this year of the 500th anniversary commemorating the posting of Luther's 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, one way to make amends is to refrain from hagiography and to remember the reformer whole. Celebrating his stunning accomplishments without downplaying his equally stunning failures. That is the only fitting tribute for a man who considered himself, in the words of one of his most famous aphorisms, simultaneously a saint and a sinner. Simul justus et peccator. Luther's Body Language a guest essay by Professor Martha Stortz. For books this week, I review a truly remarkable biography. The author is Kate Hennessy. The title, Dorothy Day, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty, an intimate portrait of my grandmother. New York, Scribner, 372 pages. In the acknowledgments at the end of this book, Kate Hennessy says that it took her five years to write this family memoir about her paradoxical grandmother, Dorothy Day, who lived from 1897 to 1980. Her many complexities and contradictions and in particular, the deeply complicated mother-daughter relationship between Dorothy Day and her only child, Tamar, 1926-2008. Well, those five years were worth the wait. Kate Hennessy, the youngest of Tamar's nine children, strips away the hagiography surrounding Dorothy Day, who in fact is now on track for Catholic sainthood. She also strips away the hagiography from the Catholic worker movement that she founded with Peter Morin in 1933. 
In many ways, this is a painful story that raises fundamental questions about the means and ends of ministry. Hennessy tells her family stories with a rare mix of candor, compassion, respect, and, at the end of the day, genuine gratitude. Stanley Vishnusky, a close friend of Dorothy Day, who joined the Catholic Worker in 1934, just a year after it started, and remained with them until his death in 1979, once observed that people came to the Catholic Worker expecting to find saints, and instead they found human beings. Robert Ellsberg, who transcribed and edited Dorothy Day's handwritten diaries, calls Hennessy's biography, quote, a stunning work that reminds us that holy people are actual human beings. The real martyrs, it turns out, are those who have to live with the saints. The subtitle of this book, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty, comes from one of Dorothy Day's favorite writers that she loved to quote, Dostoevsky. In the end, says Kate Hennessy, quote, if after years of struggle, weariness, and a sense of deep and abiding failure, my grandmother believed in salvation through beauty, then how can we not listen? Once again, a biography. The author is Kate Hennessy the granddaughter of Dorothy Day. The world will be saved by beauty. For movies this week, we go to the country of Spain. The title of the movie, Footprints, The Path of Your Life, 2016. My wife and I have done three pilgrimage walks. The 500-mile Camino Santiago, or Way of St. James in Spain, which is the subject of this documentary film, the 400-mile pilgrimage across southern France called Le Chemin du Puy, and then in 2016, the 350-mile Way of St. Francis, from Florence to Assisi to Rome. All of which is to say that I was very excited to watch this documentary film about ten guys from Gilbert, Arizona, who joined a Catholic priest to walk the Camino Santiago. Even though this movie is not a great film, it's still a good story worth watching, especially if it provokes viewers to consider walking the Camino themselves. The scenery is beautiful, and the pilgrims are enthusiastic. One important note. These pilgrims took what is called the Camino del Norte on the northern coast of Spain. They did not take the main route, oddly enough, called the Camino Francais, which is far and away the most traveled route. Every year, more than 200,000 people walk this Camino Francais. So, why not you? I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Once again, the title of the film, Footprints, The Path of Your Life. And for poetry, a very short but powerful, powerful poem called After St. Augustine. The author 
is Mary Elizabeth Coleridge, 1861 to 1907, a British novelist and poet. Sunshine let it be, or frost, storm or calm, as thou shalt choose. Though thine every gift were lost, thee thyself we could not lose. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net. For Sunday, November the 5th, 2017, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.